Welcome to the Vintage Grace Sunday Podcast. We hope our series on the book of Revelation will challenge and encourage you to grow closer to God and recognize that He wins. Let this message be a reminder to you of His love for you and the plan that He has for your life. I grew up in a church culture context that you didn't bring anything in the church sanctuary, especially not a 12-pack of soda. Like, this is bad. That's all right. And I know that there's limits to metaphors, but if life can be like a box of chocolates, I'm going to call you a soda can, all right? Now, how many of you guys think that these soda cans can hold me? Now, just for the record, I do a lot of CrossFit. Some of you guys do CrossFit. I do CrossFit. I'm a lean, mean, I don't even drink soda. But I don't know about you, anyone wake up at 3 a.m. this morning or just me? Yeah. Yeah, I hope you're praying for me. You just, you start to feel like life can be crushing. There's just things happening in our life, in our circumstances, pain points, trials, tribulations. I don't know about you, but there can be times I feel like I'm getting crushed. It's just real. I don't know about you. I don't know what's crushing you. We have a definition for pain at Vintage Grace. Anybody know what it is? It's the gap between your what? You guys are so smart. Is it on the screen? We'll take it. We'll take it. Baby steps, church. But I think there's a difference between these two cans and these two cans. What's the difference? Those cans were empty. The question, of course, is just what are we full of? You think these cans will hold me? Because you're like, why would he do this illustration if they're not going to hold me? And so sincerely, there's a question in my heart for you as a pastor is I don't want you to be crushed. That's only true of you if you're filled with him. Amen. Pain is a part of life. God has allowed pain. Pain is the gap between our present state and our desired state. And I've spent way too much of my prayer life and maybe even you have with your prayer life of saying, God, get me out of the pain. Here's the problem with that prayer. Where is God in the midst of your pain? He's with you. He's literally saying, but I allowed that to happen for your good and for my glory. You're like, God, how does that happen when two-year-olds get diagnosed with cancer? But God. God is good all the time, church, and what? Part of why we say these phrases is for muscle memory, not of our head, but of our heart, because the truth of the matter is pain is a part of life. And so I don't know what caused you to wake up at 3 a.m. I know what it was for me, a list of things. A list of gaps in my life between where I am and where I'd like to be personally, relationally, financially. I mean, the list goes on and on and on for every one of us. And I think way too often we as Christians are like, I want to avoid pain. That's not the prayer of the king. The prayer of the king is that Christ be magnified. The prayer of those in his kingdom is, Lord, we trust that your better is better. But the truth of the matter is what? We don't trust that very well, do we? Anyone have trust issues or just me? That's the issue with the throne of our heart is that we try to put things on the throne of our heart that we think will fill us, that we think will make us happy. And the reality is we're living in a world where we'll be crushed apart from Christ. And so I do believe, as James says, that 
Trials are a gift from God, but the enemy is not even what you think the gap is. Paul says this way in Ephesians chapter six, he says, your war in the world is not with flesh and blood. What's your war against? Spiritual? principalities of, of, of the world that we don't see. And so Revelation is this book on seeing the things not yet seen in the future and not yet seen in the presence. And so my prayer for you as your pastor who wants you to be happier tomorrow than you are today is that you would not be crushed by the gaps in your life. Instead, you would be filled by the Spirit. Here's my summary. Say, if you have your Bibles, turn to Revelation chapter two. Here's my summary statement. As pressure mounts in our lives, and it's happening to all of us, the goal is not to not live with gaps in our life. The goal is to live with Christ in all of our lives. So as pressure mounts, that's a normal thing. We're gonna experience an opportunity for grace and joy like never before. Who wants to be happier tomorrow than they are today? Raise your hand. If your hand's not raised, you got insecurity issues. I want you happier. Every one of us wants to be happier tomorrow. The opportunity for happiness comes in pain. But God is good all the time, so we trust him. This pressure and suffering that's gonna happen in our world, it's happening right now, and it happened in this first century. This pressure and suffering comes as a result of being with and in the presence of Jesus, so therefore we do not ask for the relieving of the pressure if it costs us the presence of Christ. Does that make sense? We don't say, God, get me out of the pain. We say, God, what are you inviting me into in the pain? Now, please hear me. If you're experiencing pain in your life because you're a knucklehead, that's not what we're gonna talk about in the text today. If you're experiencing pain in your life because there are consequences of sin, that's different. The pain that we're talking about with Smyrna today is the pain as the cost of following Jesus. We've said it this way before at Vintage Grace, discipleship that costs nothing might actually be worth nothing. And so it's hard for us to resonate, I believe, with, with a text like today because we're not feeling it the same way. But can I just encourage you to open your head and heart for a moment because I do think God's inviting us into something. If the faith costs us his presence instead, we will never get rid of that because it affords us what nothing else in this world offers. Pressure, trials, circumstances, gaps in our life offers us the affirmation, the proving of our faith, as well as the strengthening, the improving of our faith. So who wants stronger faith today than they did yesterday? That's why I'm here. A part of why I'm up at 3 a.m. is because the Spirit's preaching the message to me and saying, Drew, here's what you need to repent of. Here's where you need to be encouraged. And here's what I love. This is our first sermon of our ninth year as a church. Eighth birthday party was last year, which I think if I do the math correctly means today's our first Sunday as in uh, moving towards nine. And I love it. We're in the middle of the seven churches. In the seven churches, we're gonna do a lot during these seven weeks. We're only on week two. In these seven churches, we're gonna repent a lot because five of the seven times, Jesus tells the church that he's writing to, he says, repent. Today, we're talking to one of the two that he doesn't say repent to. Does this church need to repent? Of course they do. Every church needs to repent. But here's Jesus' message to Smyrna. You've been faithful in the midst of pressure. Be encouraged. Some of you just need to be encouraged. All of us have a gap in our life, in our marriages, in our relationships, in our friendships, in our, all of us have gaps. Some of you just need to be encouraged and say, God sees you and he says, I love you as you are where you are. Just, just chill. God's grace is sufficient for you in your weakness. And so he's gonna write to the church of Smyrna. And again, we have these seven patterns in every one of these letters to the church. Remember John in chapter one, if, you, if you're kind of joining us today, picking up the pace a little bit, John in chapter one has a vision of Jesus and he's standing with the seven churches. He's in the midst of their suffering. He's in the midst of their pain. The context in early church in Rome is a lot of suffering. It's a lot of persecution. Why? Because the Roman government wants to sit on the throne of, of your heart. They're calling your allegiance to them and to them alone. And if you don't let them, they will crush you. 
And so there's this allegiance war going on in the head and the hands and the heart of this early church. And so he writes to Smyrna and he says, be faithful. The pattern is to the angel of the church, thus says he, the author, and it's an attribute from chapter one. He says, I know your good things. Typically he says, I also know your sin. Repent of your sin. Finally, he who has ears, let him hear. And to those who are conquering. So the question is, will we be faithful? So church, that's my hope for you. Even as Jen just said, just hearing you guys sing, it's such a privilege to dive into the text with you to say, God, would you speak to us? Would you remind us of who you are and would you make us faithful today? Let's read the text together, starting in verse eight. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write these words. This is the Jesus giving this prophecy, Jesus giving this epistle, Jesus giving this letter. It's the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Here's his words. I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you are rich. I know the slander of those who say that they are Jews who are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested for 10 days. You will have tribulation. Be faithful unto death that I will give you the crown of life. What the spirit says to the church is the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Church, would you pray with me? Father God, we open our, our hands and our hearts and we ask you to speak. We ask you to remind us who you are, that you alone have victory, that you alone are worth it, that you alone are glorious. In the midst of your church, in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our brokenness, Jesus, would you speak? Spirit, would you pierce not just our head, but also our hearts so we might be more like you, so the world might see the hope that only you offer, we pray. And everybody said, amen. So we're gonna zoom in on Smyrna. It's kind of a fun word, say Smyrna. Just sounds fun, right? And so every week, these seven weeks, we're gonna get a little bit of cultural context. It's the Roman Empire, it's a persecuted church. Why? Because there's an allegiance for your heart. That's what we're fighting over. It's this allegiance of your heart to the angel of the church in, in Smyrna. Now, Smyrna was a beautiful town. It was called the Flower of Asia. It, it was called the Crown of Asia. They put it on their coins. They essentially said, we as a city, we are the best for all sorts of reasons. I find it ironic because the name comes from death. Smyrna is actually named on many levels because of myrrh. You, you see the, the correlation there verbally. It's the theme of death because as a city in 600 BC is when they first were destroyed, but then Alexander the Great in 290 BC resurrected them. On their coins, they would say things like, we are the first and the last as a city. We are the best of the best. Nobody can take us down. Nobody can kill us. We are Rome. They actually rivaled with Ephesus over who was the best city as far as size and affluence, the way they built their temples. They built one of the earliest temples to Roma itself in, AD, in BC 195. Then they started to build temples to the imperial worship. They were called temple guardians in AD 26. They had Rome's ear. This was an affluent place. They had paved streets. They had gymnasiums. They had CrossFit gyms. Like this was the place to be but it was also named after death. There was this pride, there was this arrogance. The bishop of Smyrna in the early church was a name that you might recognize. His name was Polycarp. We'll talk about him later. He would have been about 20 years old as John was writing this letter. And so this letter went to Ephesus first and then it went to Smyrna. It was just the, the direction that the letters would have been delivered from Patmos. It was just the next stop on the postal delivery route. And so John writes this letter recording this to this audience, the audience of Smyrna, affluent and wealthy believers of life and of death, but the power over both. And so here's what he says. The words are of Jesus, who is the first and the last, who died and came to life. Now, this would have been significant. Why? Because they said, we have the power to die and the power to come back again. And Jesus says, no, I'm the only one. Again, there's this fight for who sits on the throne of our heart. And you've heard me say it before, how much vacancy is on the throne? There's vacancy for one. 
Will it be Rome or will it be Jesus? Will it be you or will it be Jesus? And so that's the fight that starts to take place. And so John says, these are the words of Jesus who alone has the power of life and death. These are the words that a 20-year-old polycarp would have been listening read in the synagogue or in the temple or, or in a house church. He would have heard this said and inspired him in his life with Christ, that he alone has the power over death. He alone has the keys of Hades. And so what does that author say? There's the audience and there's the author. What does he say? Here's his message. His message is, I know your tribulations. I know. I've been there. I know your tribulation, your poverty, but you are rich. But I know the slander of those who say things about you, those that are Jews who are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Now, again, if you're like me, you read this, you're like, I've never heard of the synagogue of Satan. Tell me more. Now, again, when we read that, I want to just pause for a moment because as we read the text, it's easy for us to try to translate in our town. We see a synagogue of Satan and we see a big devil face with horns coming out of his head. And we're like, that, that's not what John means. Specifically, that's not what Jesus means. It's not so much of who is Satan, but what is Satan? What does the word even mean? The word means accuser or liar. So here's the context. The Jews are working with the Romans. Have we seen this context ever before? Have you heard of a guy by the name of Saul? What did he do? He worked with the Romans to persecute Christians and he killed them before he became Paul. Have you heard of that whole crucifixion thing? Who killed Jesus? Well, people say the Jews, but actually it was the Romans, but the Jews worked with the Romans to do that. And Pilate wanted nothing to do with it, if you remember, right? He's like, no, no, this isn't about me, but they worked together. And so in the same way, the Jews in Smyrna are working with the Roman officials to get rid of this new sect, this new religion that is the followers of the way. Most followers of the way were actually Jewish. At this point in life, these were converted Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah of the Jews. And so they believed in Jesus as the Messiah. And so the Jews had an arrangement with Rome. Rome wanted them to worship Caesar. And so they were able to say, hey, as long as we say that Caesar is Lord of the empire, we'll say that, but that's all we're gonna say. Then Rome let them worship in their synagogue. Rome let the Jews do what they needed to do. And they had an arrangement. It was going well until these new Jewish Christians showed up. They started to rock the boat. Why? Because they weren't willing to say that Caesar was Lord of anything. Now, yes, Jesus said, give to Caesar what Caesar's, pay your taxes, that's fine. You live in an empire, no big deal, but you are residents of what? A kingdom. You're residents of heaven, you're residents of the kingdom. And so these new followers of the way, the way, the truth, the life, we call them Christians today, they were causing issues for the Jewish Roman citizens that would say, hey, we're gonna worship Caesar, but only to a degree. And the Christians said, we're not willing to worship anybody but Christ alone. Vacancy for one on the throne of our heart. And so this created a problem. This was the context. As the Jews are working with Rome and as the Christians are now worshiping. And so what happened is there were lies being told. Now, were, were Christ followers Christ and Christ alone? Absolutely. But there were things that were being said about them by Jews to get rid of them. So the word Satan actually is a word that says accuser, liar. There were lies being said about Christians and it was leading to this persecution in Smyrna. So that's the context. Now, what do we know that Jesus is gonna do with the great accuser and the great liar? Because Satan lies all the time. He accuses all the time. The one for me, especially as a young man in my faith, was simply this. Drew, you're not good enough. Drew, you're a sinner. You're scum of the earth. I have a friend that planted a church called the scum of the earth. I think it's a great name, but Drew, Drew, Drew. And I got to a point in my faith where I finally said, you know what, Satan, you're twisting half-truths. But the reality is, that totally is true of me. Drew rhymes with poo, right? And so that's true, but God. Amen. Being rich in mercy and balance of that love, he sent his son to make me a son, to bring me back. So he uses this half-truth, and so Satan is using these half-truths. He's accusing believers, he's lying about them, but we know what will Jesus do to the serpent? 
he will crush him. There will be a crushing of the serpent. There will be a crushing for anyone that's apart from Christ. We see it in Genesis, and John will pull it apart even more in Revelation chapter 12, verse 10. And so these are the tension. This is the circumstance. So he's writing to Christians who are mainly Messianic Jews, and he's writing to them, and he's saying, don't lose heart. I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. Now, why are they experiencing poverty? They're experiencing poverty because this economy was booming, but it was only booming if you did what Rome wanted you to do. If you didn't do that, what happened? Well, then you lost your job. You lost your way of making money. You lost your house. You lost your friends. You lost your affinity. You lost anything that was close to you because it was a battle for allegiance, Rome or Jesus. He says, I know your tradition, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Why? We see that in James chapter two, verse five. If we have Jesus, but have nothing, what are we? We have everything. We are rich in Christ. We know the truth of the matter. And so on some level, I can't help but think about this gold rope that hides underneath our stage. It just lives here forever, for eternity, until Jesus comes back. And maybe you've seen this before. It's a sermon illustration we've adapted from Francis Chan. And what does the black tape represent? Anybody remember? Life. 20, 40, 60, 80 years. I don't know how long you're going to live. But the truth of the matter is I've done funerals at this building for 20-year-old, 40, 60, 80-year-old. The reality is we're all dying. We've been given life. The empire wants you to believe that this is all of life. This is it, that that's the allegiance for your heart. But as believers, we recognize that at the end of life becomes what? Life, eternity. And so we call this black tape living. The empire wants you to believe this is the only thing that matters. And Christ is calling you to say, live in light of eternity. Recognize that the empire will have a beginning and an end, but frame your life not around the black tape, but around the gold rope. And so I think that's some context that we must understand as we're reading this letter. Jesus says, I know your tribulation. I know your poverty. I know in the black tape, Smyrna, y'all lost your jobs because you chose to follow me. That's tough. That's not, not a gap. I get frustrated when Christians are like, oh, everything's awesome. No, guys, sometimes as a Christian, things are awful, but it's black tape things. It's not gold rope things. Eternity is secured. And so Jesus, he writes this, he says, I know your tribulation, I know your poverty, but you're rich in Christ. Laodicea has everything, but they don't have Jesus, which means they actually have nothing. He says, church, pay attention to what you're investing in. The other word that we need to parse is tribulation. And this is one of my favorite words in the world that's called philipsis. Say that with me, philipsis. Now again, this is a fun word. It looks misspelled. I promise it's not, right? But thelipsis is what happens when the empire of the world and the kingdom of God impact in the middle. When Paul gets off the throne of his, life, of his heart and he repents and he starts following Jesus, he becomes Paul. Saul becomes Paul. And there's this collision that happens as kingdom meets empire and it comes together. Thelipsis is only a word that we see used in the context of spiritual pain. The word thalipsis says, literally, there's a pressure that's a crushing pressure. That's what the word thalipsis means. And so in the context of Smyrna, there's a thalipsis moment in their life where they're saying, I'm no longer a resident of the empire. I'm actually a resident of the kingdom. And Smyrna is shining bright. Remember, this is one of the only churches where Jesus isn't saying, repent. What's he saying? He says, be encouraged, hold fast, be faithful. That's what he says. There's a point in your life where they are shining so bright. And does darkness like light? No, they hate it. In fact, Jesus told us this back in John chapter 15. If you abide in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. But if you abide in me, guess what? The darkness will hate you. They don't actually hate you. They hate I who is in you. But I who am in you is greater than he who is in the world. Somebody say amen. 
This is significant because when there's pain points, if you're like me, when there's a pain moment in your life, what do you do? I run away. I'm not a firefighter. I'm not a hero. I don't go into the pain. I do whatever I can to avoid the pain. My prayer life is, Lord, get me out of the pain. Philipsis is a point in our life that Smyrna's experiencing that my prayer for you as your pastor is that you're ready to experience also. Because why? Because God shows up in Philipsis. Because Jesus shows up in the suffering, he shows up in the pain. And Smyrna is not being threatened that their light lampstand would go out. Their lampstand's not in danger of going on. In fact, their lampstand is shining bright. That's what's causing their pain. What's causing their pain is that they're not settling for lesser joys. And Jesus says, I know that kind of pressure. Amen. Jesus says, I know what it's like to faithfully follow the Father. I know what it's like for people to be mad at you because darkness hates light and darkness has two options. Here's the first one. You either deal with what the light revealed and you repent or what? You try to get rid of the light. Those are the only two options that darkness has. And so Smyrna is the light of Christ. It's the moon reflecting back to the dark world and it's actually causing some conviction. And it's a big issue. Why? Because darkness cannot tolerate light. And so as they're under pressure, I'm reminded of what Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12, that all of those who love God and who live godly, all of those will be persecuted. Church, if you're not feeling a tension between the kingdom and the empire right now in your life, can I just encourage you to do a reflection on your residency in the kingdom? Is anyone else, feel, I mean, that's part of what woke me up at 3 a.m. Is just recognizing the thalipsis in my life. Recognizing the reality of the world that we live in, what my children are going through, what my family is going through, what the world is going through, the war, the brokenness, the hardships. Church, if we don't have a tension between the kingdom and the empire, my fear is we've drifted back to the empire. My fear is that this has become our home and we don't recognize the longing for the glory of God to be lived out in all of us that there are gaps that we are feeling as culture is clashing with the kingdom. Why? Because the world is calling for our complete allegiance. Smyrna City adapted this, this adage. It was this, Rome first in all things. Church, be on guard. That day may be coming. It's Christ and Christ alone. Amen. That's it. There is a war for our head and for our heart, and it is intense and it is growing and as the lipsis continues to increase, we must recognize in the New Testament, we see the word a lot. It's not a word for normal trouble. It's a word for kingdom entering the empire type of trouble. Thomas Torrance, Scottish theologian says this, church cannot be a true church without causing some trouble. Amen. Now I'm not saying we're trying to be troublemakers. I'm just saying I believe that we live in a world where we'll lose our tax exempt status, where we as a church, I'm not saying we'll experience persecution the way that the rest of the world is or even the way that Smyrna is, but it sure feels like we're moving that direction. The tribulation is becoming a part of our life. And again, the word tribulation is philipsis, that we're leaving this and we're stepping into the allegiance that we have with Christ and with Christ alone. When Jesus prays on the cross, what's his prayer? Father, not my will, but what? Thy will. Church, my fear is if we step out of the empire, we're becoming thy will Christians, not my will Christians, and that's gonna come at a cost. Why? Because anything that's worth having is worth paying for. And I want you to remember as we read these texts here, he says this, I know I've been there and, and that dot, dot, dot. See, what I wanna read next in verse 10 is I wanna read Jesus saying, guys, it's gonna be awful, it's gonna be so hard, but in the win, uh, in the end, I'm gonna win. I'm gonna sustain you, I'm gonna raise you up and it's gonna be amazing. You're not gonna experience any pain and any suffering at all. Does, don't you kind of wanna hear that from Jesus? Why? Because, well, because I'm a weenie, that's why. 
because I can't handle it. So here's what Jesus says. Like, I'm ready, Jesus. I'll follow you, but I know that you're gonna give me what I want. And here's what Jesus says. I love this. He says, do not fear what you, what? Are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. So be faithful unto death. I clearly, the transcriber messed up the Greek, right? That can't be what Jesus wants for us. I've had people tell me, Drew, Jesus doesn't want us to die. No, Jesus wants us to be ready to die. Jesus is not afraid of our death. He's preparing us for it. In fact, he tells the church of Smyrna, no, some of you are going to. See that dot, dot, dot. I want nothing more than Jesus to say, no, it's gonna be perfect. You're gonna get healed from cancer. No, it's gonna be perfect. Your marriage is gonna be restored. No, it's gonna be perfect. That's not what Jesus says. What does he say? He says, church, be on guard, be ready. That's what he says. That dot, dot, dot is not, I'm gonna take it all away. I'm gonna actually allow some of the suffering to stay put. And so here's what he's saying. He says, I do this so that you might be tested. How many of you guys like pre-tests in school? Any of you high schoolers like pre-tests? I don't like real tests, but the pre-tests help me learn something, right? They help me learn where I actually don't know my stuff. They help me get ready. They help me see, oh, actually, that, that wasn't faith. That was actually my kingdom, not thy kingdom. And so here's what he says. He says, these tribulations that you're stepping into, this suffering that you're stepping into, I allow it to happen so that you might be tested. And I'm only gonna allow it to happen for 10 days. Now, quick numerology. If you remember, Revelation's got a ton of numbers. What do the numbers stand for? There's a completeness. Whenever a, a mother and a father ha have a baby, one of the first things they do, right? I don't know why. They always ask this question, do they have 10 toes? Are there 10 fingers, right? And that's that question. Why? Because that's complete. Part of me is like, what are you gonna do if they only have nine? Are you gonna like return them? Like... But there's this number of completeness, this number of full, that this tribulation is gonna be real, but it's also numbered. It's gonna be short. It's the black tape. It's gonna come and it's gonna go and it's gonna be worth it. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is going to throw some of you in prison. You will be tested. It'll be for 10 days. I want you to, if you have your Bibles, turn to Daniel chapter one. I love this text. It's Daniel taken into Babylon, which I think was the very first empire that we talk about, the Tower of Babel. And so Daniel's taken into Babylon and you see this ellipsis clash, this clash between the kingdom and the empire. Are we gonna trust that God's better is better or are we gonna give up? And so the king of Babylon, you've got, maybe you, you remember King Nebuchadnezzar. He says, I want lean, mean, fighting machine. I don't want crossfatters, I want crossfitters. And so he's raising up this army. And so he goes to these Jewish men, you know these names like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and, and Daniel, and he says, I'm gonna put you on this lean, mean, fighting machine diet. But it was outside of the will of God for their lives. And so they said, no, we're not gonna do it. Here's what the text says, chapter one, verse 12. Test, test your servants. For 10 days, pay attention, a complete test. Let us instead be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of our youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he, the king, listened to them in this matter and he tested them for how long? 10 days, a complete test. At the end of 10 days, then it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in the flesh, which clearly now that's a good thing, so I'm going for it fatter in the flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. And so the steward took away their food and their wine and they were to drink and gave them vegetables. Fast forward to verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired about them. He did all the tests. He found them 10 times better. Church, that's a number on purpose. Completely better. And I love that reality. I love that there's some points in our life as the church where we're undergoing thalipsis and God says, I got you and I'm gonna restore you and you just be faithful and I'm gonna give you what you want. You're gonna be actually 10 times better. 
But guys, let, let's be really honest. As he's talking to Smyrna here, it doesn't always go that way. Sometimes that's what happens. Other times God says, no, for my glory and for your good, I'm gonna let them throw you into prison. For my glory and for your good, I'm gonna let them kill you. But as believers, we understand that death is not an enemy. Death is but a gateway to glory. That's what death is. And so for Daniel, he saves them for a season. But guess what happens to Daniel as time goes on? Daniel dies. Avoiding death is not the goal. Being ready for it is, amen? I used to get confused as a parent. You know, you get, they, they give you these kids and they're like, take them home. And all you know about them is they have 10 fingers and 10 toes. And now you're supposed to like make them not die. Early on in life, especially when your oldest kid gets cancer, you start to recognize the goal is not to keep them away from death. The goal is to get them ready for death. That's God's heart as a father for you. He, he's gonna allow you to die. Why? It's gonna be better for those of you who love Jesus. You will be tested. And ideally that test happens before the final test. And for 10 days, you will have tribulation. Be faithful, he says, unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Go read 2 Timothy. Go read James. Go read 1 Corinthians 9. These are verses that are given to us to inspire us, to remind us that the gold rope is for eternity, that the black tape is but a season. It's real, but the crown of life is coming, and it's worth it. Conquering is being faithful in the face of death, and therefore death does not destroy us, but it delivers us. I want you to hear these words. I want them to penetrate your head and your heart. The crown is coming. Conquering is certain. The crown is coming. Conquering is certain. That's important because there's going to be points in your life where the enemy is fighting for the allegiance of their heart. They're like, We're going to crush you. You're like, go ahead and crush me. That's fine. Because conquering is certain. Amen? The crown is coming, Jesus says. Conquering is certain. Say that with me. The crown is coming. Conquering is certain. I want you to remember that because there's going to be moments of thalipsis in your life, probably this week. There's going to be moments of gaps in your life. And you're going to have to reconcile that. And you've got to remember the crown is coming. Conquering is certain. Jesus, I can trust you. I don't have to fear death. Death is coming and I'm ready. Amen. So often my prayer is, Lord, get me out of the gap. Lord, Lord, I don't want to die. And again, if we know the Lord is Lord, guess what? We're like, give me that Jesus. Give me my Father, give me the Son, give me the Spirit three in one. Nothing is better than to trust and treasure Jesus. And so, so much of fear in our life is not knowing the future. But if we know the future, that the crown is coming and that conquering is certain, then we no longer have to fear death. Right. So here's what he says. He says, do not fear. Do not fear what you're about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you might be tested. For 10 days, you will have tribulation. The black tape will end. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. Somebody say amen. amen. Like way too often in my life, I'm sitting in a gap and I'm like, let me get out of this gap. Let me get out of here. And God's like, I have something for you that's way better than you could ever dream or imagine. The question is, do you trust me? So for implications, here's the first one. It's a quote from a pastor in LA by the name of E.V. Hill. Those who are born once die twice, but those who are born twice die once. Just think about that for a moment. My role as a pastor, my role as a father, my role as your friend, your role as your friend to your friends, your role to your children as a father or a mother your role is, as a coworker, it's not about the job. Your role is, are we actually ready to die? Death is certain. I don't mean that to be depressing, but y'all are dying. Every one of us, the black tape is unavoidable. And it's good. It's allowed by God. God allows us to die so that we might actually have life. Again, those who are born once 
die twice, but those who are born twice, when we're born again, when we get off the throne of our heart and we say, Jesus, that's your seat, your seat alone. When we repent of our sin, then we will not die again. We will die once and it will be a gift and a gateway to glory. And so the implications, there's two. They come straight from Jesus' words to Smyrna. The first one is this, do not be afraid. It's worth it. Whatever the suffering is, it's worth it. God's inviting you into something. He's gonna redeem and reclaim and use all things for his glory. I think way too often in our world, we try to hide our suffering from people. We try to hide it from people. We're like, I want you to think I have a perfect marriage. Guys, I don't have a perfect marriage. You know why? Because the woman that I married, right? Now I say that because you know my wife, you know how not true that is. I don't have a perfect marriage because I joined it, that's why. The moment that you entered your marriage, you know what you did to it? You made it broken because we're broken. We fight for our joy. We allow people to see the chaos of our life. It's worth it. Way too often in my life, I'm like, no, I don't want you to see the truth. I want you to think differently about me. No, for your yet to believe friends, would you let them see that your marriage is broken? Your joy is not in your perfect marriage. Your joy is in your perfect Jesus. There's a difference there. And so we fight for our joy. We don't have to be afraid of death. We don't have to be afraid of messed up marriages. That doesn't mean that we accept them either. But that quote from Tim Keller that we love is, God loves you as you are and where you are, but he loves you so much to not leave you there. He's making all things new. He's giving us victory. He who has an ear, let him hear, church. Let him hear that you are more than conquerors in Christ who made you well. You were dead, but God made you alive. And so again, do not be afraid is number one. Number two then is be faithful. Be faithful doesn't mean be perfect. Be faithful means be faithful to follow, be faithful to repent. Be faithful to say, hey, here's my marriage. It's got issues because of my presence. That's what happens. Here's my kids. They're not perfect. Here's my FICA score. Here's whatever it is. And I'm not trying to win my friends to Jesus because of what I've done. I'm trying to tell my friends about what Jesus has done. I'm trying to tell my friends that apart from Christ, I am crushed, but in Christ, I can persevere. In Christ, I can be faithful. In Christ, he sustains me when I would give up because I run away from fear. I run away from trembling. I run away from Christ. And as we're faithful, there's this strange joy that starts to happen. We see it in Jesus, right? He goes to the Father, and Hebrews 12, we see this, that the love of Jesus goes to the Father, and he says, God, if there's any other way to save those knuckleheads called vintage grace, if there's any other way to deal with the sin of Drew and the sin of you, then let's do it that way, Dad. There's the gap in Jesus' life. If there's any other way, I'd like to go that way. And what does the Father say? No, son, I'm gonna be with you in your suffering, but this is the way. This is it. And what does Jesus say? He says, not my will, but... Thy will. Church, so many of us need to repent of the my will Christianity in our heart and actually repent to the thy will. We need to get off the throne of our heart and say, I don't want to be a my will Christian. Jesus modeled for us that it was worth it and he modeled for us a strange joy. And so the author of Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, Jesus endured the cross. Did the cross stink? Yes. The crushing is real. The pain of brokenness, of sin, of heartache, of war, of tragedy, of cancer, it's real. You're not doing your friends any favor to say, oh, my marriage is awesome. I don't know what cancer feels like. I don't know, like that doesn't help them. What helps them and goes, no, apart from Christ, I'm crushed, but in Christ, I'm sustained. You start to understand that you're invited into something. You know what I discovered in all of my, my Coke research this week, this kind of Coke research, not the other kind of Coke research. I discovered something with cans. As the cans are in temperature that heats up, you know what happens to them? They get stronger. I think that's true in our spiritual journey. As the temperature gets turned up, and again, here's the truth of the matter. I feel like the temperature's getting turned up. 
And I'm just kind of got this strange joy that I'm like, this is awesome. Because we know the final score. If we know the final score, we don't have anything to fear. Not cancer, not brokenness, not fighting. We have nothing to fear. We already know. Do not be afraid. It's worth it. Do not be afraid. And then there's this strange joy that starts to come because in most of my Christian life, I've never had fear of losing my job or opportunity because of my faith. I still don't have a fear of losing my job because of my faith, just so you know that. But I have friends that are starting to. In most of my Christian life, I've never actually had slanderous things said about me and been rejected in public conversation over controversial issues, but it's actually starting to happen, isn't it? In most of my Christian life, I've not had family conflict or socially been excluded because of my kingdom views. But over this last year, I'm like, it's starting to happen. The temperature's getting turned up. We get stronger. There's an opportunity. Now for some of us, we get weaker and we repent. We recognize that our faith is not strong. Everyone in this room does not have strong enough faith. So can we just get over ourselves? It's not about you. It's about what he's doing to you and through you for his glory. So we invite people into our broken marriage. We invite people in to the chaos of cancer. We invite people in to coaching Little League. Guys, you wanna see the flesh of humanity? Just go watch people coach Little League. It's ugly, right? Like the amount of times I've had to repent for my own coaching and for the other person's coaching, I, I double repent. Guys, we're broken, but God, but God makes us whole and the temperature is getting turned up and it's worth it. And what's starting to happen is we now get an opportunity to proclaim our faith. And I think one of the best ways we do it is not through the preaching of the gospel, but it's through the living of the gospel. It's through this strange joy. It's through this strange joy that Jesus had in the garden when he said, thy will, not my will. It's through this strange joy that Paul had that all the early martyrs had. It's through this strange joy that Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? It's been swallowed up by the grave, amen? Does anybody else love Easter? I can't wait for Easter. Preaching through Revelation, I feel like every week is Easter. Why? Because the big idea of Revelation is God wins. God wins. So we have nothing to fear. We, we can step in with boldness to fear and to suffering. We can say, God, for the joy set before you, death will not win. And so, so I just really believe as a church that the vision of the kingdom of God is not taught, it's caught. Now I get it, I'm, I'm a teaching pastor. I used to teach at, at schools and in Christian schools and seminaries. I understand all of that. I'm not anti-teaching. I really do enjoy teaching. But the best way the gospel is communicated is not through words, it's through actions. That vision in life is not taught, it's caught, it's lived out. That's why Jesus came. He didn't just come to die for you. He came to show you how to live in the kingdom. He came to show you how to be a thy will kingdom guy, not a my will kingdom guy. He came to show you what it means to get off the throne of your heart. And this week as I was studying and, and Smyrna, I couldn't help but be inspired by a man's faith by the name of Polycarp. It's just a fun name, is it not? So many fun names this week. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. He's one of the earliest martyrs of the church. Polycarp would about the age of 20 when we actually saw this letter get delivered. I mean, imagine that, that feeling. Polycarp is gonna be a martyr in just 70 some odd years. And right now he's sitting as the church is reading this letter and it's a letter of Jesus standing in the midst of his churches. He doesn't not know your suffering. He knows your suffering. He knows you have gaps. He's had gaps, but he knows that God's better is better. And Jesus gives this message to Polycarp and it's the same message he gives to us. Do not be afraid, be faithful. Do not be afraid, be faithful. The crown is coming. Victory is guaranteed. Polycarp later on in life at the age of 86, 
officials from the empire were coming to find him to kill him. You wanna know what conquering looks like and not being crushed? His name is Polycarp. Now I love this. Why at 86 are they gonna kill him? I think that's fascinating. I read so many articles on this guy this week. I think it's fascinating that at age 86, they want to kill him. For 86 years, he's been faithful to preach Jesus. It's like, did you not hear all my sermons? For 86 years, he's faithful. And it just reminds me, there's someone in this room right now that needs to hear this. Please pay attention. Just because you're 60 or 70 or 80, you have a role in the kingdom. Be faithful. Do not fear, be faithful. I'm seeing it way too often in this world. I get a text from a 70 year old man, almost weekly, if not daily, just saying, hey, I'm praying for you, I'm with you, God wins, don't be afraid. He, he just kind of preaches Smyrna to me over and over again. Do not be afraid, be faithful, it's worth it. There's a strange joy that comes in the midst of suffering and Polycarp understood it. And I love this, that after 86 years of faithfulness, after countless messages and sermons, now they decide to kill him. And so I love this. his friends, they find him. He's actually hiding out in a farm. He's not even hiding, he's doing ministry. And, and he's at a farm and his friends say, like Job, you better run, you better curse God and die. You better get out He's like, no, what time are they showing up? Somebody make some cookies, get the milk ready, right? And so these officials show up and they knock at the door and Polycarp's like, no, 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 run. He's like, I'm gonna run to the door and open the door, you jerks. Like open the door and he invites them in. He says, are you hungry? You want some food? You want some water? And they're like, we don't understand. We're here for you. We're, we're on orders to kill you. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But you're gonna kill me about Jesus. Can I tell you about him first? What kind of faith is that? He's like, hey, if I'm gonna die for Jesus, you just better know that he's worth it and I've got this strange joy, amen? So he invites him in. He tells about Jesus. In fact, so many articles reference the fact that his captors started to feel bad. They're like, we can't kill this guy. In fact, I, I love this. Later on, he gets in front, this is from a Christianity Today article. Now again, Polycarp was a disciple of John, the author here. No wonder why he was ready. No wonder why he was prepared for this strange joy. In spite of his friends saying, run, he said, the Lord's will be done. Christianity Today has this excerpt from an article. He, Polycarp, was escorted after that setting to the local proconsul, Statius Quadratus, who interrogated him in front of a crowd of curious onlookers. Polycarp seemed unfazed by the interrogation. He carried on with this witty dialogue with Quadratus until Quadratus lost his temper and he threatened Polycarp. He said, he'd be thrown to wild beasts. I'm gonna burn you at the stake and so on. Polycarp just told Quadratus, he says, look, the proconsul's fire might last for a little while, black tape, but the fire of judgment, and of course he slyly added, which is reserved for the ungodly, will never be quenched. Polycarp concluded, but bro, why do you delay? That was my word, sorry. But why do you delay? Come on, let's do this. That's the faith I want. Guys, we're all dying. Let's die well. Let's live well. Let's spend our time and our treasure and our talent. Let's spend our tribulation for the glory of God. The fire miraculously doesn't work. It burns a circle around him. <laughs> He's like, I'm changing my name. Call me Daniel. The fire miraculously doesn't work. It burns a circle around him. It creates a heavenly glow. You not see the moon picture there, right? It's not the holiness of Polycarp. It's the grace of God reflecting off of him. It's pressure that creates an opportunity, not an obstacle for the glory of God. Eventually, they just stab him to death. They're like, this is ridiculous. Let's just kill him. So they stab him. One of the articles referenced the fact that some of his blood as he was rolled actually put the fire out. The fire couldn't kill him, but he killed the fire. Come on! <laughs> Guys, I don't know what your suffering is right now. He does. I don't know what we'll wake up at 3 a.m. But God's got it. 
Now, it might not necessarily mean that you're gonna be Daniel. It might mean you're gonna be Polycarp. I don't know, but here's what I know. God's better is better. God is good all the time. That the kingdom beats the empire and it eats it for breakfast. At the time of Polycarp's death, he says this, bless the Lord that I might share in the cup of Christ as a martyr. Christ be magnified. Would you pray with me? Father God, we want that more than anything. We believe that you are working all things together for good to those who love you and are called according to your purpose. And so we surrender this time to you, our time, our treasure, our talent. We surrender our tribulation and our tragedy. And we ask, Lord, on this first day of our ninth year as a church, that we would be like Smyrna, that we would be faithful. That we would be like the Bishop of Smyrna, that we would be consistent, that there would be a strange joy that you would invite us in to share in your sufferings, that you and you alone would be magnified through every word that we say, through every dime that we spend, and through every opportunity of tragedy that comes our way, Jesus, speak to us. Church, would you stand and celebrate that he alone is worthy of being magnified in our life? Thank you for joining us for our Revelation series. As you go this week, be comforted by the knowledge that God is in control and he desires nothing more than for you to find full and complete joy in him. See you next week.